Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow, tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Inspiration for my sermon today came from a conversation with my wife this week. And some of the info came, uh, some of the content or outline comes from a sermon I hear, heard a couple of years ago by a pastor up in New York, Tim Keller. Um, today we're looking at briefly at some of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a, a sermon that maybe you need to hear, but this is one that I need to hear. So you're invited to listen in as I preach myself a sermon. And uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, three times in this passage... Three times in this passage, Jesus says, do not worry. Do not be anxious. And, you know, that should strike you as odd from the very beginning. That should strike you as somewhat weird that Jesus would command people not to worry. I mean, who gets up in the morning and is like, I really, really am looking forward to be anxious, being anxious today. You know, who wants to be worried And so Jesus saying, I command you, do not worry, three times should strike you as a little bit weird. If you've ever woken up in the middle of the night, and your brain is on, and you just can't turn it off, you know that the one thing you cannot do is say to yourself, do not worry. And it's not like you could flip a switch and it just turns off and you go back to sleep. If your brain is on in the middle of the night, you are turning things over. And the one thing you cannot do is talk yourself into going back to sleep. Worrying, anxiety, is involuntary. So what is Jesus doing? When he says, do not worry, he's not being like a football coach. He's not commanding us or shouting at us and saying, this is it, don't worry, don't be anxious. Yet, Jesus tells us this three times. Now, you know, I'm, um, I'm a preacher, 
Which means that I stand up in front of people on a normal basis, and I tell you about God's Word, and I tell you how to apply it in your lives. And good preachers are usually terrible counselors. Because if I sit down with you, and this happens regularly if you've met with me, and I'll say, okay, here's what you're going to do. Stop it. Most people are like, yeah, thanks. That was really, really helpful. I really, really felt listened to and guided. And you know what? Jesus is much better than Jeff Bradford. Jesus doesn't just say, stop it. Instead, this morning, as we'll hear, he's inviting us. He's inviting us into something. He's inviting us to consider. See, he says, do not worry three times. But three times he also says, consider. Think. Meditate. And this kind of runs counter to a lot of people's perceptions of Christianity, which is, I just got to believe. Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got to think. You've got to consider. You've got to meditate. You need to wrestle with this. So, let's think. Let's consider. Consider your worry. Consider your anxiety. Now, all of us think we know a lot about anxiety. We are a culture that has a ton of people who struggle with worry and anxiety. There are so many people who are on prescription medicine for anxiety. There are lots of books and self-help seminars. I don't have to do any work for you this morning to convince you that worry is a deal that we struggle with in our culture, do I? We know this. Lots of you came this morning with stuff on your brain that you'd been processing. Worries, anxieties, frustrations. You know... But I want to tell you this. You know, we also know, we know what, we know that we're worried people. We know it's bad for us. You know, there have been plenty of studies to tell you that worry has all kinds of bad physical side effects, right? Makes you eat more, drink more, sleep not enough, and it, there's all hypertension, there's all kinds of stuff. But I want to tell you it's a lot easier to identify worry than to really understand what it is. Jesus is speaking to a group of people in the first century, in a subsistence level, third world culture, right? And he speaks to them about three concerns. He says, don't worry about what? What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Now, I don't want to be paint with too broad a brush. I know that you know, this recession has actually made some of those things real concerns for many Americans that weren't concerns years ago. But for many of us, we are not people who have to worry if there will be another meal. It's worrying what is going to be for the next meal. We're not worried about if we have clothes for the future, if we have drink. We worry about what kind of clothes and drink and those kind of things. You know, but rich people have worries too, right? It's not just the first century poor people who are worrying if they were going to have another meal. You and I are people in the, first, in the richest country in the world... And yet we are people who are consumed with worry, consumed with anxiety. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? Now, I'm a, I'm a student of culture, and if you come to this church very often, you'll hear me talk about our culture, and I, I love to like examine things in culture. So this week I'm going to talk about Twitter. I, I, really, I think Twitter is fascinating, because Twitter started out as this, um, if you're not familiar, if you're not... 
haven't been awake for the last two years. So Twitter, you know, is this online uh, social media that allows you to say what's happening right now. And, and you can say, so people put up things like, I'm eating a hot dog right now. You know, I mean, you could put up anything on Twitter. And one of the things that's fascinating is what Twitter is becoming for people. What social online media in general have become for people. Because Twitter or Facebrag or whatever your you know, um, social medium of choice is, is just a canvas. It's a canvas. It allows you to paint for other people the picture of you you want them to see. And behind that is one ideal. All of us are striving to make the me I want to be. And we are very good at putting the me I want to be up on Facebook, or putting the me I want to be up on Twitter. You know, under, underneath all of this is an assumption that every person has. We walk around with this all the time. This me I want to be says, you know, I am my own project. I am trying to make my life into something. I'm trying to create uh, this perfect me that not only will other people see and approve of, but I myself will feel good about. We're trying to make a me I want to be. You know, as one social analyst, uh, Kathy Sierra, writes, there's one hard thing about Twitter. Twitter is simultaneously leaving people with this sense of not being connected, of not feeding... It feeds the fear of not being in the loop. If you're not tweeting enough... If you're not checking it enough, you have this sense of like, am I, am I this person or am I somehow missing out? You know, as I said, look, I'm a student of culture and I can sit here and, you know, talk about Facebook and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. But any of these social mediums are just, you know, I, I say, oh, that's part of the culture. And it's, if you sit in on my sermons regularly, you're like, this guy loves to talk about culture. He talks about culture says this and culture defines that. Culture is nothing more than you writ large. Culture is no more, you are culture. And see, we are people who are deeply Deeply insecure. Each of us are trying to construct this me I want to become. And deep down there are great deep fears that that me will never surface. I will never be able to make that person. That will never be realized. So, you know, we can identify our anxieties. I can say, look, you're worried about your food, your clothing, who you are, how other people see you. That still is only identifying anxiety. What is anxiety? What is worry? Jesus shows us this in this passage. He says a kind of a summary statement. If you look down all the way down to the last thing he says, look at what he says here. Therefore, do not worry about what? Tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what's coming next. And see, at the bottom of all of our fears and our worries, all of our anxieties, is not what's happening now, it's what's coming. Jesus lays his finger right on this. He says, you're worried about not your actual present, but your future. What could be. Worry and anxiety are the desire to control something that we cannot control. The future, what might happen, what could be. 
what could be coming down the pike. See, when circumstances, when circumstances arise in your life that cause you to worry, that cause you to be anxious or upset, what do they reveal? They reveal this. You're not in control. In fact, what they reveal is you never were. You never were in control. You thought you were. You thought you had everything managed. You thought you had everything worked out. Danger comes into your life. Situations come into your life that cause you worry or distress. And what does it tell you? You didn't have your thumb on the button. You didn't have your hand on the, on the steering wheel. You're not that in control. In fact, anxiety is your desire to control what is ultimately uncontrollable. You know, if that's what anxiety is, then where does it come from? Where does it come from? And Jesus tells us here exactly where it comes from. Look at verse 27. What does he say? Which of you, by being anxious, can add one more hour to your life? Can add a single hour to your life? Now, that's not a rhetorical question. Who can add an hour to your life? Come on, you know the answer. It's always the right answer in church. God, right? God can, is the only one who can add an hour to your life. God is the only one. And see, what this tells us is that your worry is not just a psychological issue. You're not just a maladjusted person. Your worry and your anxieties are not just a physiological issue. You know, and I don't want to be careful because your worries, your anxieties can have psychological or physiological elements, but worry, anxiety is always, always, it may be those things as well, but it's always a spiritual issue. Because there's always some element there that says, I should be able to add an hour to my life. I should be able to control these circumstances. I should be able to make things happen. That's why it's always a spiritual issue. See, We deeply resent the fact, deep down, that God is the only one. God is the only one who can make what you want to happen, happen. And most of us, deep down, think God is against me. God is not only not so good, but He's working on the opposite team. He's making my life more difficult. Underneath all our fears and our worries are a sense of, God, you know, I want your power. In a heart of hearts, we're like, God, I want to to be able to make my worries go away. I want to be able to make the me I want to be. And second, a belief that God is against you. Now, you may think that you are like, you know, the singer-songwriter. You're like the original to have these problems. But I want to tell you, you're just a cover band. You're just one more cover band. Right? These are, this is an old story. This be like God stuff. This, you know, I have a me I want to be and God's getting in the way of that. That's actually an old, old song. It's kind of tired at this point. And it goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. If you want to look on page one of the Bible, it tells you this story, right? It tells you about a, a man and a woman and God says, Hey, I love you. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to, I'm going to put you in this perfect place and you can have control of everything else but me. And what happens? They're like, does God really love us? 
Has God really taken care of us? I think God's working against me. I think God is out to hurt me. And what do they do? They take the forbidden fruit. They're like, I want control of the one thing that God says I can't have control of, which is Him. I want to manage Him. And the story of the fall, it plays over and over again in our lives. It's like a bad rerun of a bad made-for-TV movie on late-night cable. Your lives are all this, we're all the same. All of us are like, God is against me. I wish I was Him. Really? This is who we are. And Jesus invites us. He invites us, therefore, to consider He invites us to think. And he gives us two things to think about. And these are very appropriate for an April weekend. Birds and flowers. So look what he says. Jesus invites us to consider the birds. And he says something which sounds really insulting to me. I don't know if you've read this passage or thought about this. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we sort of turn down. We're not really thinking. We're just sort of like, yeah, I've heard this before. What does Jesus say here? Consider the birds. Aren't you more valuable than birds? Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds really insulting to me. Uh, Yeah, I hope I'm worth more than a couple of pigeons. I mean, have you ever thought about that before? But that's exactly the point. That is precisely the point. Is that you think that's how little you're valued by our Heavenly Father. Really? Hey, deep down, let's get honest. We can even do that in church. Deep down, we believe that God does not cherish us. God does not love us. God does not value us. God does not care for us. God is annoyed with us. God is frustrated with us. God is sick of us. Real. We really believe this. We, deep down, we don't believe in a father who really loves his kids. We don't really believe. You know, deep down, we're like, exactly like Adam and Eve, that first couple I was talking about in the garden, where we're like, God, I'm not sure that you're really out for my good. I really think that you're out for my bad. See, the truth is, the honest truth is that God is not really into the me you want to be. You're like, this is great. I have got this figured out. I have a me that I want to be. And God is not into it. God, instead, He wants to build something much larger than you do with your life. You want to build a a skateboard. God is like, I want to build a Porsche. You want to build a lean-to. God's like, I want to build a palace with your life. And we're so holding on to this. Me, I want to be. I've got to make this out of my life. I've got to make myself into this person. We can't possibly see the goodness and love of a Heavenly Father who says, I have greater plans. I have greater hopes for you. You know, it's what makes us think that our God's against us. See, this is hard for us to see as an adult, but I I can tell you as a parent, this is very easy to see. So this week, I'm walking through the house and I come upon my six-year-old who is about to take some metal fingernail clippers and jam them into an an electrical socket. Now, this is kid six. He has known for years and years and years that this is not a good idea. You know, but when I'm like, no, Clay, don't put the fingernail clippers into the outlet... He gives me this look, like, 
says, what am I doing? I am limiting his freedom. I'm limiting his self-expression. This is the me Clay wants to be. And I'm like, no, that's not good for you. But in that moment, he's like, you don't love me. You don't care much. And I'm like, yes, I do. Pull those away. See, aren't we like this with our Heavenly Father? God, I've got this plan. It's a wonderful plan. It's going to raise my hair. It's going to be great. Here's how you apply the bird argument in your life. See, you have to argue with yourself. You can do this. I give you permission to do this. In fact, this is now culturally accepted. People used to be walking around talking to themselves. People, they put them away. Now we think they're on a Bluetooth device. Okay? So, here's what I'm giving you permission to do. Start talking to yourself. You've got to argue with your heart. You've got to have some arguments. And it's okay. You can do this in the car. People think you're, you have the Bluetooth on the car. You can do this walking around. It's fine. And just, I want you to start this argument. I want you to pick a fight with your heart. In those moments when you're like, God doesn't care, you're saying to yourself, birds are more valuable than birds. My Heavenly Father loves me. See, take some of those things that you know are true. God cherishes me. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. God loves me. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. You, you start taking things from Scripture. You're like, hey, if God, Romans 8, if God didn't spare his own son, but graciously gave him for us all, how will he not give us all things? Does God love me? Yes. You've got to have that argument. You've got to pick a fight with yourself. You've got to start arguing the birds into your heart. God loves me. Because your emotions are going to tell you everything else. You're like my six-year-old with the fingernail clippers. You're just waiting to jam it in. And you're like, God is thwarting my plans. God loves you. One thing I know, two things I've heard, that you, O oh Lord, are loving. Second, Jesus invites us to, to consider the lilies. To consider the lilies. And this is a perfect week to do this. There's a cherry blossom festival going on over there. You can go practice this sermon all afternoon outside. Consider the flowers. What does he say about them? Consider, meditate on how God provides for them. They don't, they don't spin. They don't toil. And yet Solomon, the great king, was never decked up like the flowers are. Look how God provides. We have a Christian theology term. It's Providence, which is not just the capital of Rhode Island. That's where they got that word. But it comes from our word providing. God is one who provides for his children. He loves. He provides. And you know, what's hard for us about this, I know, is that you can look back on your life. Some of you sitting in here are like, I don't want to hear anything about how God provides and how God loves. You can look back on the events of your life and you're like, I think back to a couple years ago, thank you God for your providing. That was so awesome. You're mad. You look back and you're like, how could God, who loves me, have provided some really crappy stuff that's happened in my life? And you're like, thanks, but no thanks. If this is your love, this is about all the loving I can take, God. But wait. See, there's a big difference between the Christian version, the Christian theology that says providence, and what we think of as fate. Fate is a Greek concept. 
uh, goes back to like Greek gods and goddesses. Think back to like middle school, um, you know, social studies or whatever that was, English. You know, you had to study about the gods and goddesses and they were cruel. And the, the wheel of fate just kind of rolls over people's lives. And the gods and goddesses are out there having a great time, having a party, and the humans are just getting smushed. And they don't care. That's fate. Our God is a God of providence. Our God is a God who provides, this is the definition, exactly what you need at the moment you need it. Now, Jesus invites us to consider that God provides. Now, um, I was reading a couple weeks ago, there was one psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, just suggests this hypothetical exercise. Imagine you have, you... You have a child, and for five minutes, you are given a script of this child's life. And you're given an eraser. And you can go through and erase anything you want to out of this kid's life. And so here's how the script reads. He says this. You read that your child will have a learning disability in grade school that they'll have to overcome. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be really hard. And they'll have to really work. In high school, your kid will make a great circle of friends... And then one of them will die. And that your child will suffer and struggle as they come to terms with death. After high school, your child will actually get into the college they want to attend. But while there, they will be in a car crash and your child will lose a leg and go through a difficult depression. But have to learn to rely on God. A few years later, your child will get a great job and lose that job in an economic downturn. And so on and so on. Now look, if you have five minutes... Take out the eraser, erase anything you want to. Be careful. Because isn't it the hard circumstances that have been put in that child's life that bring strength? Isn't it the difficulties along the road that have actually made that person a stronger person? A person who actually knows how to love well and think about someone besides self? See, we're in a generation, some of you are kids who had helicopter parents kind of swooped in and rescued. And that's where we are right now in our culture. Swoop in and rescue. And a lot of us can't imagine a God who would ever put things in your life, who would ever provide for you, things that are not on your me-I-want-to-be plan. Maybe, just maybe, your Heavenly Father provides what you need when you need it. And here's the line. For his purposes. Something bigger. You're like, but I'm building a skateboard. And God's like, the reason that that doesn't look like a good plan, the reason you can't recognize my gifts, my providing, is because you've got the wrong plans. I'm building something so much better. See, how do you use the lilies argument on your heart? Pull out the Bluetooth, start arguing with yourself, picking a fight. How, where is God today? Why has he abandoned me? Why has he put me in this difficult situation? This isn't the me I want to be. You pull out the Bible. You pull out the Bible and you read the scripture and you let it talk to you. You let it argue with you. So you read Genesis 45. The story of Joseph, this guy's life, they got tanked over and over and over again. Horrible life. Favorite son, sold into slavery. You know, rises to, to the top in, in somebody's household as a servant, unjustly accused, put in prison. 
You know, just over and over, tragedy after tragedy, and at the end of it he says, you meant it for bad, people around me meant it for bad things, but God meant it for good. God was doing something bigger. Acts 2. You read, Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon to the people right after Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he says to them, look, people, you killed Jesus, yet it was God's plan. God was doing something bigger and better. So you have to take this stuff, put on your Bluetooth, and start arguing with your heart. Our God, look how He loves the birds. Look how He loves. You're more valuable than them. Look at the lilies. Look how He provides. It's not always what I want. It's not always what I expected. God gives exactly what you need in the moment for exactly what His plan is. See, what happens if you don't do this? What's your life look like? I'll tell you what my life looks like and see if you can match. Okay, let's play pictures. Alright? When I don't believe that my father loves me, when I believe that God doesn't provide, I do one of two things. Either I'm like, i got to go get me what I need right now. Or I'm paralyzed. Isn't that our, our response in the middle in the middle of fear, we either shut down, we're paralyzed. How can God do this? Or, we're like, i got to go get what I need for the, from this life. Because God can't depend on Him. Sure can't depend on God. I have a GPS in my car. And my kids love to tease me about disobeying my GPS. So the GPS will always tell me the right way to go, and I'm always smarter than the GPS. And you probably knew that already. So, I, you know, we're going somewhere, and the, the GPS says, turn right. And, you know, I'm like, nope, we're, I know the faster way there, right? And what's worse about this is that my oldest son has programmed it to have a British accent, which makes it sound all the more authoritative, right? Turn right. You know, and I feel like, I'm like, Okay, I'm really rebellious now. You know, now look, I can say that I trust my GPS. I can say my GPS is reliable. I can say I'm so thankful I have it in my glove compartment when I need it. But the proof is in the pudding, right? The proof is whether I actually hook it up and follow it. And I think that's so much about the life of faith. That's such a great picture of the life of faith. Do you trust that God really has your best interests at heart? Do you trust that He is taking you somewhere? You know, do you trust God? Now, sometimes in Christian circles, we use that phrase to mean, do I entrust God with my eternal salvation? What happens after I die? And that's, that's fine. But look, don't you realize, some of you who've been a Christian for a while realize this. It's one thing to say, I trust in God. There's another thing to say, I trust God. Isn't there? There's one thing to say, I believe you, I believe in God, sure. But there's another one to say, I believe you. That you love me, that you're providing for me, and that you're taking me somewhere. It's the difference between hooking up the GPS and following it when it says turn left, and not. You know, how are you living out of anxiety and fear? Some of you need to apply this sermon right here with just your garden variety everyday fears and anxieties. Some of you would say, yes, I am an anxious person. I am an anxious person. I'm a fearful person. I'm a worrier. And some of you need to kind of shut down the sermon at this point and just pray. God, I need to trust you. Others of us would say, that's not me. 
I'm not that kind of person. And I want to step back from being nice and be your pastor for a second. Now look, I've been around you guys a long time, and there's some stuff we need to talk about as a family. You know, how do I know that you don't trust God's provision for you? Some of you are dating non-Christians. Some of you are like, you know, I don't really trust that God could provide or will provide or actually sees better not to provide the ideal Christian person right now. And you're like, I'm just going to go date somebody else. I'm going to go get what I need right now. Because you don't believe God can provide that for you. Some of you are, are never dating. I should be doing at least two to three times as many weddings as I'm doing. I'm serious. We don't have that much gift of singleness in this congregation. (laughs) And you know why? It's because there's nobody good enough for you. You're part of the Seinfeld generation. You know, she's got man hands. (laughs) Right? You're You're like, oh, he's a high talker, close talker, loud talker, low talker. There's nobody good enough. You're like, how can God provide somebody for me? And you're sitting across the circle every week in home group with, with an incredible, incredible diversity of people who would be great enough for you. In fact, more so. More than you deserve. And you're like, God can't provide. And God hasn't provided anybody. I'm like, are you blind? There are incredible people in this community. It's like fishing in a barrel. I'm sorry, it is. I'm telling it like it is this morning. I had extra coffee. Look, nobody's hot, good enough for you because nobody's hot enough for you. Jesus didn't die for you because you had a good body. Jesus didn't die for anybody because they're hot enough. Alright? Alright, enough of that. Another way that this is expressed in our community is that we can't count on you. You know, you are always got one foot out the door. You're like, I'm not sure I really can be a part of this deal. I'm just going to kind of hang about on the fringe here. It's it's easier to do that. You know, I'm not going to trust that this is what God's provided because He loves me and He's put me here. And therefore, we have a problem with unreliability as a community. You know, somebody wrote our administrator a note email, hey, you know, I know I signed up for this team, but I don't have the gift of consistency. I almost had to be chained down. They had to talk me off the ledge. I was freaking out. Gift of consistency? That's called having faith and saying, you know what? I'm not just making the me I want to be. I'm not just kind of doing what is best for me and myself in this moment. I'm going to try to be a part of this. I'm going to try to actually contribute and be part and show up and be relied on. It matters, people. It matters. You know, some of you are like, I want to be able to throw my bags in my car and leave at any moment. I don't want to be relied on. I don't want to be messed with. I'm always pursuing this little ideal dream of the me I want to be. Look, if you would trust God, if you would trust God, that He loves you and has provided for you, the ways that you would exercise that are by saying, I'm going to be here until God clearly opens the door somewhere else. I'm going to be a part of this thing. I'm going to let people be in my life. I'm going to let this be part of God's provision for me here. I'm not going to chase the job, the, the perfect lifestyle, the great apartment, 
somewhere else? You know, the me I want to be is too small a dream, people. It's too weak. You know, we're ruled by, by fear of missing out. We're ruled by like, you know, what is this perfect little person that I'm trying to create? And where God is like, I've got a master plan I'm building in your life. Would you listen to him? Look, there are only two ways to live. There are really only two ways to live. See, you can say either I manage my life or I let God manage my life. Let's consider how managing your life is going for you right now. Because many of us, we're like, hey, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm able to control things. I'm in charge. Well, the truth is, how much evidence in your life is there that you've done a great job being in charge? That you've done a really good, bang-up job of like making things work out? Now, you know, if you're really honest with yourself, and I'm telling you to be honest with yourself in my counseling mode right now, look... You're not doing a great job running your life. It may look to other people like you are, but it's, gonna, it's falling apart. You know, the only other option you have is to say, God, I'm letting you run this thing. I'm submitting my blueprints to you. I'm letting you drive this car. I'm asking you to do this. Because, you know what, I am almost wrecking all the time. You know, if I could come over to your life and lift the hood and see what's under the, the engine, what's in the engine, most of it is that there is absolute confidence in self. No self-doubt. Never a sense of like, oh, you know what, I may not be competent to run this thing anymore. That's a question you need to ask. Consider. Consider. How's your life running? How's that working out for you? Here's my last consider for you today. Consider letting Jesus win. Consider letting Jesus win. This is essentially what he says in verse 33. What does he say here? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be yours as well. Now this is not a sermon about having misplaced priorities. This is not a sermon about having misplaced priorities. In fact, the idea of priorities is a mixed up notion. As I was talking to Susan about this week, she was like, you know, priority, by definition, is one. It was only in the 20th century, priorities was made a plural plural word. There was never a priorities before the last century. And it reflects that we sort of think we can do it all and have it all and be it all. The me I want to be. Well, the truth is, priority, to have a priority, means there's somebody comes in first and nobody else does. There's only one first place, as Talladega Nights tells us. There's only one first, right? There can't be more than one first. One agenda, one Lord, one master, one blueprint, one direction to your life. There can only be one. So I am saying, get your priority straight. Get your priority straight. To mean to put God first means that you don't come in first place. Your plan, your me, I want to be, no, that's not in first place. You know, a couple years ago I wrote a, a blog post on the Liberty website where I sort of butchered this idea. And I actually wrote this whole thing and it was called Choosing Second Place. And, and I, I wrote this whole thing on this very verse. Seek first the kingdom. You can't have more than one priority. Jesus is your only priority. And this is what I said. And it was a dumb thing to say. 
and this is what you're thinking, so I'm just going to say it, that it means downsize. I said, that's what I wrote in my blog. Hey, downsize your desires, downgrade your hopes. You know, it means kind of settling. And I would tell you that settling is not a biblical idea. Settling is what most of you are thinking of. You know, like, I just need to settle for the scraps that God has given me. I need to sort of just accept life as it is. No! No, 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 no. The life of faith is not settling. Settling says, you know, faith says, I don't trust in you, I trust you. I trust you. I don't believe in you, I believe you. You're strong. You are loving. You provide exactly what I need in exactly the moment for exactly what your plan is. See, the life of faith, seeking Jesus means to say, Jesus, my life is not my project anymore. I am your project. I want to be a part of what you're building. You're going to build something better. I'm handing over the blueprints of the me I want to be, and I'm saying, what do you want? I seek first. You win. I trust in you. You know, on occasion when I'm driving along with my GPS and I've been stubborn and I've kind of, you know, kept going when it said, turn left. You know, you get going with that and eventually the GPS says something to you like this. When safe, execute a U-turn. When safe, execute a U-turn. We have a word for that in the church. It's called repentance. And my calling to you today is to execute a U-turn. You know, as people who are filled with unbelief, filled with the sense of, you know what, God God is not taking me where I want to go. My call to you is to turn around, turn the car around, and follow His leadership. He's got better plans. He's got a better destination. He's got a bigger thing that He is building with your life. And my calling to you we're going to come to the table. This is the point of our worship where we're like, you know what, God, here I am. I need you to come in and work. I need, you know, under the hood is all about me managing my own life. I need you to mess with the engine. And I invite you to come in repentance. Repentance means you name to God. These are the ways that I've been foolish. These are the ways I don't believe you. You know, some of you may have to do the argument in your head. You may have to argue yourself to come forward to the table this morning and receive communion. You may have to say, God loves me, the birds. God provides for me. God is faithful. You may have to talk yourself up here. But my calling to you is to not sit still. To not just keep driving the same way. To do the U-turn.